0: Welcome to This is Modern Rock. I'm Will Westerkow, and I'm joined today by Larry Crane.
1: Hey, kids. How's it going out there?
0: Thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Larry, you are, if I'm not mistaken, you are the owner of Jackpot Recording Studios in mm-hmm. Portland?
1: Yeah, Jackpot Recording Studio started uh, in 1997. Okay. Yeah, I had a home studio before that called Laundry Rules. Oh, nice. Which was in a very familiar environment to where we are right now, <laughs> uh-huh. like a basement in Portland. Right. And uh, somebody, a previous tenant, had written all the rules for their laundry, nice, which were really funny because they were mostly misspelled. Mm -hmm. But um, there was a studio in Seattle called Laundry Room, and I was like, oh Oh. man, I don't want to be confused with that. Sure. It was a good studio where they did like the first Foo Fighters record and stuff. Oh, okay. When uh, I moved into the commercial space that became Jackpot, Elliot Smith was helping me, and Mm -hmm. we had to rename the studio. Okay. Jackpot seemed kind of funny and kind of nice. Sure. It all worked out.
0: Yeah. In addition to Jackpot, you're the editor of Tape Op Magazine?
1: Right. I founded that in 96. It was a year before starting the, the studio. Okay. And then about three years later, I was joined by my partner, John Bocigalupi, Okay. who does a lot of the publishing end and the layout and stuff mm-hmm. like that. You know, that started like as a super labor of love, like Xeroxed at somebody's work, and, right and that kind of thing, and it has grown to be the largest recording magazine in the world. Wow. Circulation wise.
0: Wow. And um, and T now has a podcast as well.
1: Yeah, it's just right now it's recycled interviews. Okay. So we don't even get as serious as this. We've using the little recorder that was there for the interview. And so sometimes I get these emails, people complaining about the sound quality. They're right. like, You're an engineer. Why does yeah. it sound so bad? I'm like well, if we do one specifically for the podcast, we're going to right. put some mics up and yeah. do yeah. it proper. <laughs> okay, Great. but yeah, it's fun. It's fun to see the re- responses to that. Mm-hmm. People are digging it.
0: Yeah. So you also a sound engineer and you're a producer, mm-hmm. producer, musician,
1: engineer, records. You, I played in bands. You do it all. I'm the archivist for the state of Elliot Smith.
0: Okay. Yeah. Wow. All kinds of stuff.
1: How do you How do you have time for anything? You know, uh, <laughs> uh, the main thing is is to have a lot of people around you that, that work really hard and help you. Yeah. I'm, I'm a firm believer in not DIY. Yeah.
0: Okay, so today we're going to be looking at songs from October 1989. Do you have any idea what you were listening to in 1989?
1: I was in the band Vomit Launch at oh, that point. Okay. We'd, we'd been a band for like four years, and we were playing shows a lot i think nirvana might have opened up for us that year really yeah wow. <laughs> before nirvana or anything yeah and uh we were touring around the the west coast a lot we were based out of chico california okay but i was listening to a lot of the bands we, we did shows with you right. know we were lucky to play with bands like no means no and the dead kennedys and the replacements and mud honey and uh sure the list goes on x you yeah know, really good stuff yeah. so Some of those were later than that, but up until there, we'd already done shows with Camper Van Beethoven Mm -hmm. and uh, a bunch of bands, so making friends. Yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) And that actually, I was going to ask about whether any of your impetus for opening a recording studio, was it all related to a desire to meet bands that you admired, but...
1: I'd already met them. Yeah, that's, that's what, I'm, what I'm thinking. <laughs> was, I think if that was your impetus to open a studio, you'd fail miserably. Yeah. But um, it was more that people were seeking me out, mm-hmm. even my home studio. I had made so many connections prior to that that when I moved to town, I started bumping into musicians we'd played shows with mm-hmm. here, like uh, John Moen, who's in the Decembrists now. I'd been in the Dharma Bums and had a band called the Maroons that was just starting, and that that became something I recorded like in my house and then hey. in my studio. But really, Jackpot started because people were like, "Hey, you know your your home demos sound great. Oh, mm-hmm. help us make our record, you know." Yeah. So it was it was definitely more of a community impetus, right? You
0: know? But by this point, you've you've helped record acts like REM. Right. Is that, I no, never no? worked with R.E.M. Oh, really? No. I thought I thought I. Oh, they that worked the in my studio. In your studio, okay. See, that's the problem that okay.
1: all the journalists always right. make is they go, wow, you worked with all these people like Eddie Vedder and R.E.M. And I'm like, I was not even there. Okay. Well, you know, I've met a lot of these people, mm-hmm. but I didn't work with them.
0: What about this one? In the first episode of this season of our show, yeah. uh, we talked about a band called The Go-Betweens. Oh. And their final album before they broke up, 16 Lovers Lane, um, we looked at a song from that. What I discovered later after I did the show, their first album after they reunited was recorded at Jackpot. Recording with, studio. with me
1: engineering, yeah. Um, I had seen the Go-Betweens on tour mm-hmm. in San Francisco on the 16 Lovers Lane tour. Okay. Uh, I was a huge fan because the guy who recorded Vomit Launch, the first two records, mm-hmm. was a fellow by the name of Greg Freeman who was also in a band called Pell and also had been in The Call, mm-hmm. if you remember them from the 80s. Yeah. And so Greg was, is a dear friend back then and still someone i barely keep in touch with but a door and he i'd give him blank cassettes and he'd go here's mission of burma right here's the chills mm-hmm. here's and so one of them was, was you keep talking about this band the go-betweens greg you yeah mean, he gave me a cassette of the first records leading up to a uh, 16 lovers lane the right. earlier records one of the things is that was like an amazing education i mean in the cultural milieu of 1985, 86, 87, it was all like maximum rock and roll and hardcore West Coast punk, mm-hmm. and it was just not what we were going to do in our band. We enjoyed that to an extent, but we were definitely more melodic and mm-hmm. stuff. And to hear a band that had two amazing songwriters and really like just wrote about their lives and feelings, and uh, it was just really inspirational. And and the early records too, Grant. Uh, played bass, one of the songwriters, and he was really melodic. Mm-hmm. And so I was the bass player in Vomit Launch, and I was super into Peter Hook and Joy Division, New Order, that kind of style. But I started picking up some of Grant's stuff too, like a little more lyrical. And, yeah. and so I found it really inspirational. So to get to meet Robert Forster like the year before, or earlier that year, and then to have them in the studio, mm-hmm. Janet Weiss coming in to play drums, right. yeah. Slater Kenny and Quasi, Uh, It was just an honor. I mean, it was kind of crazy. It all kind of came together because Sleater Caney met them like a few nights after I met them in Seattle. Uh I went up to Seattle and interviewed Robert for the tape up. Then the next night or two, they're playing down in San Francisco and Sleater Caney go backstage and meet him. And Janet's like, hey, I'll play drums. Wow. And they're like, we just met Larry. And they're like, Larry's great. And so. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. You know, it came together and I was really honored. It was amazing.
0: Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That was yeah, a great that's story. A, there's a
1: story. We just filled up the whole episode. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, uh, maybe we should listen to some songs. <laughs> Let's you know? do it. Yeah. So at the start of October 1989, the number one song on the Billboard Modern Rock Charts was Love Shack by the B-52s. But going into the second week, that was overtaken by a song by the band Tears for
1: Fears. This is their second album.
0: Yeah. Uh, this is their third album. Third album? Third album. Yeah. they had the Their first album was The Hurting. And right. their, their second one was Songs from the Big Chair.
1: Oh, God. I was thinking this was from th- Songs from the Big Chair. Yeah. yeah, yeah so that sorry.
0: was, a, that was a, a huge album. That mm-hmm. launched them into superstardom across the world. The Shout was the big The Shout hit. and yeah. um, Everybody Wants to Rule the World.
1: Right? Good songs.
0: Yeah. Um, and they took quite a while to follow that up. So I think it took them four years. And they released The Seeds of Love. It cost over a million British pounds to produce. Uh, but it was also successful not as successful as their previous album but it was a it was a big hit so yeah we're going to listen to the song sowing the seeds of love
1: So that was that a hit?
0: That was that was not just a number one modern rock hit, but that was a number two Billboard Hot One Hundred hit. Hot
1: one hundred. Okay. You want to hear my take on yeah, that please. song? Oh my God. That is a classic kitchen sink production. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there is so much stuff being thrown at that song. There's the Penny Lane trumpet Trumpets, solo. Yep. There's strings, little string parts that pop in and out. There's the it takes it to the church at that one point, and, the, and then there's an organ solo mm-hmm. and the hand claps and the and the little uh, church choir going. I mean, first of all, it's not a very good song. Mm-hmm. It's because they repeat that chorus over and over. It's kind of catchy, right? The vocal is someone told him to sing like his life depended on it or mm-hmm. something, but he's getting. For the material that he's singing, he's sounding too histrionic to me. He's, he's getting, like, Wah, yeah. Wah. he's getting crazy over, the, and the lyrics aren't that good. Mm-hmm. So it's like if he had just been a little more like subdued, actually might want to hear the message. But he's yelling the email lyrics at me, right. and he's all excited. You know, compared to their first two records, it's like you can see why this record didn't do as well. Mm-hmm. If you look at their first record, it's very simple. It was it was probably done on quite a small budget. Right. The next record, songs from the big chair was tons more reverb and bigger production and stuff but still the songs were pretty well focused mm-hmm. you know most of that and you can tell by this that they've lost the plot yeah it's just like oh my god even though they were able to get a hit because you know you would send the cocaine and hookers to the radio <laughs> guys and and they would do whatever you, they were told plus you're have a track record of hits right after shout after that song being really huge mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of gave him, you know, entrance into that world. No matter how bad the next song was going to be or the next album was going right. yeah, so to be, so not me, a fan. Oh man, that I don't remember that song. And it, it sounds like you never see a Get Him to the Greek, that movie. Y- yes, and yes. there's all those bombastic kind of fake Oasis songs. Uh huh. It reminds me of one of those. Really, it's like, you, it's like a joke. It's like Sowing the Seeds of Love. It's like you know, Tugging the Toad, whatever you want to call it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of like what's going on here. Man? Yeah. Well, it's also
0: interesting. I think. <laughs> If you look at their career arc, they started out very, um, I don't know if mopey is the right word, but they're very emotional. Mm -hmm. Even their band name is taken from uh, Primal Scream therapy, uh, ideas that they were very interested in. This seems like it's more of a a positive song overall. It seems like they've maybe become happy or something.
1: I'll take the first record, The Hurting, over any Mm -hmm. of the other stuff. You know, but you never can get back to where you start with, right. a, with a group like that. And once you get success, you've got managers and labels and everybody A&R telling you what they expect of
0: yeah. the pressures
1: immense. Right. I've talked to people that have been in those scenarios. And there's usually an arc, you know, there's only so high a band can get, well, I don't mean, I mean drugs, but how much, how many sales and, yes, and how big yes. a band can be. There's usually some sort of an arc and, and you have to figure out what do you, you know, how do you parachute after that huge right. success. Even Fleetwood Mac had huge success with Rumors and then everyone told them Tusk was a failure because it only sold like 4 million or something. Right, right, exactly. You know, and and it's it's one of those kind of things. Yeah.
0: So it's probably no surprise that Tears for Fears essentially fell apart after this album. Kurt Smith left the band. Right. Roland continued and put out two albums under the Tears for Fears name in the 90s. But after that, they were no more until uh, a movie called Donnie Darko came out. Mm -hmm. And that featured a gary Jules' cover of mad world yeah i remember that yeah and that was a huge hit in england actually yeah and it uh sparked enough interest in tears for fears that they were able to get back together put out an album in i want to say 2004 yeah and it was um fairly well received critically i haven't heard it but um, no one has yeah doesn't exist <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> no that that darnie taco was had a lot of great songs it had the killing moon by echo and the Bunnyman, mm-hmm. i think and it had uh the church song, you know, uh, under the Milky Way, the Milky Way. And, uh, my friend, uh, Mike Andrews did the score for that movie. Oh. And, um, uh, that Gary Jules cover is just perfect. I yeah. mean, just subduing that song even more because mm-hmm. theirs has all the arpeggiated synthesizers and stuff and stripping it down to like the core of the piano and vocals like, and slowing it down. Yeah. It's, it's really emotionally yeah. devastating. You yeah. Know, it's really good. It's great writing. Right. I and mean, that's the thing. You hear a song like this, uh, sowing the seeds of love. It's not great writing. Right. It's it's over the top. You're trying to make up for the writing with the production and the and the vocals singing. Whoa. Yeah, it's not as enticing to the listener. Right. You know.
0: So after only one week on the top spot, "Sowing the Seeds of Love" was displaced by a band called Camper Van Beethoven. Oh man. The song we're going to hear is called "Pictures of Matchstick Men." This uh, was number one for a few weeks, and this was actually a cover of a 1968 number 12 single by a band called the status quo
1: they they turned into more of like kind of a boogie hard rock band after this
0: yeah i was i did a little research status quo to me i just knew this one song pictures yeah. Ma- matchstick men from the um nuggets two compilation yeah the the british one i think Mm -hmm. yeah and apparently this band is massively 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 huge in the uk oh yeah i think they've spent more time on the singles chart in the uk than the beatles ever did oh probably so just a huge band and it's kind of crazy that over here i would say most people don't really know anything about them
1: there's a lot of bands like that
0: yeah but maybe not quite to that size
1: it's one of the bigger ones yeah Yeah. it's pretty crazy
0: Pictures of Matchstick Men is from Camper Van Beethoven's fifth album and their final album before their breakup Key Lime Pie This song, uh, the band found it when some friends of theirs in another band were playing it live Camper Van Beethoven thought that it would sound cool with uh, a violin part and uh, that was something they could do They were goofing around with it for quite a while and When they moved to a major label, they didn't want to put it on the album because as their first entrance into kind of a a larger sphere, they didn't want to be known for a song that was not their own song that they wrote. Mm -hmm. Um, But when they moved on to their subsequent album, Key Lime Pie, they didn't have what anyone thought was a radio hit.
1: It's a darker album.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so um, they brought this back in and recorded it, released it as a single, and it went to number one on the modern rock charts. Oh, yeah. So uh, let's go ahead and listen. Pictures of Magic Man.
1: I love the outro on that, uh, the psychedelic coda. Yeah. You know, and it's panning left and right. And Mm -hmm. and, uh, the most underrated member of that band is always Greg Lisher, the lead guitarist. Mm -hmm. He can pick up any kind of style and kind of pull it off. Yeah. You know, and so you tell him to do psychedelic, you get that. Tell him to do chicken picking country, he can do that. Yeah,
0: that's one of the fun things about Camper Van Beethoven, I think, is stylistically they can be all over the place. They can sound like folk or country or even... um, balkan yeah, yeah exactly yeah.
1: yeah you name it i mean so i met these guys in 85 we both opened for the dead kennedys okay i think i'd bought their record right before that and i was just their first record mm-hmm. telephone freelance slide victory mm-hmm. but we didn't see them play because we were so nervous about this gig we were getting people running up on stage and knocking our shit over yeah that we took our, our gear back to the rehearsal studio dropped it off and then came back to the show and caught like you know last chord of the last uh-huh. camper song and then watched the dead Kennedys just turn the place into a, you know, washing machine right. with the kids running around in circles and screaming. And so we went and, uh, we partied with the camper guys. We had some mutual friends. They were from Santa Cruz. We live in Chico. Yeah, so we're yeah. about three or four hours apart. And so we, end uh, ended up hanging out with those guys all night until mm-hmm. the sun came up. I believe And drank a lot of beer and talked all night about music and stuff. And, yeah, and, uh, just became good friends. I mean, You know, we'd go down to Santa Cruz to play a show, and we'd go the night before and meet somewhere and have a beer and talk. Mm -hmm. And if they came to town or played anywhere in the area, I'd go see them. I'd go see them in San Francisco and Davis and different places.
0: Yeah. I get to see them. They played an Amoeba Records show in uh, San Francisco, I think, in 2004, maybe, when they had done a reunion.
1: Mm -hmm. They're fantastic live. Yeah. And then they have so many songs to pick from and styles, like you said. It's amazing that probably more people know him by this one cover song still. Right. Because it had a video and it was on MTV.
0: Yeah. Do you happen to know anything about how their reunion came about?
1: I think what it was actually, it was, it was just kind of a thawing out of over time. Sure. And David Lowry, of course, after Camper Van Beethoven, carried on with a band called Cracker, Cracker. with mm-hmm. Johnny Hickman. And um, at some point, Victor from Camper got asked to tour as their bass player. Mm-hmm. And then they got asked to do a Clash cover, I think it was, for something Cracker did. And Camper used to do a cover of White Riot, Mm -hmm. I think it was. Somehow Jonathan got brought back in to play violin on that, and then the thing sort of ties back into what I said earlier. They released a version of Tusk, which they claimed was recorded back before they broke up, but was totally lying. They were lying about. Oh yeah, they were completely lying about it interesting and, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i i was gonna
0: say when they got back together the first release was a song for song cover of fleetwood max tusk <laughs> and everything i read said it had been recorded during downtime in the studio uh, from a previous album but yes. you're saying not true at all
1: no it was it was something new that they'd done okay it's just a good exercise to, you know and the, and the records they've done since then the new ones have been fantastic Yeah, you know? i i just admire um all those guys they're great musicians they were. It was great to see them get some success and to tour Europe and get on a major label and right. all that kind of stuff. The records, those two records, our beloved Revolutionary Sweetheart and uh, Keelan Pie, were just reissued on Omnivore mm-hmm. a few years ago with bonus tracks and, and really nice remastering. If you're into this these records at all, I'd, I'd say get those. Yeah. And, and the first uh, three records as well are really good. They're independently released back in the day, and you know, yeah, great. And they're nice guys.
0: Cool. All right, let's keep going. Yeah. Our third song of the episode, a band we featured before, Big Audio Dynamite. They were held off the top spot and made it as high as number two with their song, James Brown. Hmm. Big Audio Dynamite, of course, is Mick Jones of The Clash. After he was kicked out of The Clash, he eventually formed this band.
1: You know what? I, I listened to some yesterday thinking about the show, and I was thinking... Oh my God! They're like the original gorillas. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're like yeah. a, they're like a group where he brings people in to do stuff, and there's kind of a big beat thing around about yeah. it, and uh, there's sort of an image too.
0: Yeah, and it's a very it's kind of a mashup of different styles. It, yeah. The, like, generally, I would say like hip hop drums, mm-hmm. some some reggae bass, and also Big Audio Dynamite was um, one of the early rock bands to use samples mm-hmm. heavily in their songs, and especially movie samples. Oh, uh, yeah. where they'd, they'd find clips from, say, a Clint Eastwood movie yeah. and, and well, have some dialogue in there.
1: Don Letts was an early member of Big Audio Dynamite, and he's really a filmmaker mm-hmm. and DJ. So like with, with that kind of background, too, he's looking at yeah. the cinematic side of the band and, and bringing in those kind of elements, too. Right, yeah. So it's a good combination.
0: The song we're going to hear, James Brown, features three samples. One of them is a song called Day in the Life. Yeah, Day I in get, the Life. Day and in the Life. Then, uh James Brown's I Got You, I Feel Good. And then it features a sample of a clip from West Side Story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, from America. Right. My understanding is that out of all the samples that Big Audio Dynamite ever used in their songs, the West Side Story one is the only sample that they ever got clearance for. (laughs) So back then, studios and lawyers didn't really understand sampling and
1: didn't care that much. The, the thing was that the songwriters and, and people that own the copyrights to the sound recordings, it was just the wild West. So they didn't know that they could, you know, stop or sue or, right. or sue for royalties or mm-hmm. whatever, a co-write credit. And, and of course the culmination of that is, is the Beastie Boys, Paul's Boutique, which right. is just chock full of samples and is a, is a legal nightmare that, they never did again, <laughs> right? Of course, and yeah. no,
0: then no one could make that album today, right? That would cost <laughs> untold millions of dollars. Well, but. you
1: know, you, you talk to hip hop producers, you know, that busted through that era, and uh, we have an interview with Mike Dean coming up. He works with Kanye these days and a bunch of people, but he's done a lot of uh, Scarface and a lot of cool stuff. And he um, talks about you know having to create things to sample. Mm-hmm. So you you go, well, I kind of like this James Brown drum beat. So you play something kind of similar and you muck it up. Make it sound like a record and bring it into the mix. Okay, as your own sample. Yeah, so that you don't need worry about any clearances. You know, interesting. Yeah,
0: and so as far as that goes, do you have to pay anything? I mean, you're essentially doing a cover, right? If
1: you're covering a drum beat, the only thing that's, that the copyright law holds in place is is actual sound recordings. Mm-hmm. Or, um, as far as songwriting is lyric and melody okay so if it's a even like sometimes like riffs and stuff yeah you can kind of lift a riff if as long as it's not implying a melody directly there's right. a little bit of gray area in there with, with law but if you can you can basically like a drumbeat you yeah. can just have wholesale steal it wow i mean if you could copyright a drum beat, Bo diddley would be rich sure of right? course yeah yeah <laughs> and so would clyde stubblefield <laughs>
0: yeah yeah totally okay so This song, James Brown, is from Big Audio Dynamite's 1989 album, Megatop Phoenix, Mm -hmm. uh, named in part because Mick Jones had apparently battled a nasty bout of pneumonia during the recording that nearly killed him.
1: Pneumonia. Sure,
0: Mick. (laughs) So let's go ahead and hear it. Here it is, James Brown.
1: It sounds like he uh, had a bunch of James Brown song titles and wrote a lot of lyrics for them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. I mean this is a far cry from some of his best songwriting The Clash. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah,
0: I definitely know what you mean.
1: It's not it's no should I stay or should I go or no. train in vain. If
0: if I was on the dance floor and I've already established on the show that that's someplace I don't want to be, but if I'm not on the dance floor no, here, right no. now, we didn't dance to that song. No. at all. If yeah. I was on the dance floor, I, I might, you know, be okay with the song playing, but mm-hmm. I, I don't think I'm ever going to reach for this one no. just, you know, to listen to. Uh,
1: there was a problem in the eighties where uh, everybody felt th- that songs on the album had to be as long as possible. Like they're all like dance remixes, mm-hmm. which is a, artistically a great idea. Like it's one of the reasons hip hop is so amazing because you can just mash everything together. Right. And it's, it works. But the problem was, as a listener, listening, sitting at home, listening to an album, it's kind of like does no one know when to hit stop on the drum machine? Mm-hmm. You know, because there's six or so minutes of like the same exact beat, yeah, over
0: You're
1: and in, over. You know, arpeggio. You just set those, get the MIDI all synced up, hit the button and run. Yeah, and then you know you got a list of James Brown song titles and a couple of your own words, right? And not much else going on there kind of weird.
0: It is interesting though, because I think perhaps modern music listeners don't mind that ultra repetitiveness as much, just, you know, off the top of my head and keeping it related. Mm -hmm. If you remember MIA, Mm -hmm. Paper Planes, which sampled from The Clash's
1: Straight to to Hell. hell. Straight to Hell, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. You know, she takes, what, a two second clip and it plays pretty much straight over the entire song over and over and over. That was a huge hit. Yeah,
1: she's got a lot of character and she had some good words on there, mm-hmm. too.
0: So she's saying more interesting things than, than Mick is saying. Mick sounds
1: like he's barely there on this song. Yeah. You know, you yeah. said he had um, he had pneumonia in N- big quotes. Pneumonia, yeah. In big quotes. I mean, there's a thing when you're just, you've just you got to make a record, and you're just kind of using filler. And that song sounds like filler to me. I mean, that, yeah. that's probably the best song on that record, which is terrifying, Yeah, if it was the hit.
0: Yeah, and I think shortly after this album, Mick Jones changed up the lineup and eventually formed Big Audio Dynamite Two. Oh, right. The, the cleverly named. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's go on to the last one. This is kind of an oddball. So the final song we're gonna hear is by a band called The Sugar Cubes. Oh my God. This hit number two on the modern rock charts. And this is an Icelandic band. Uh, at the time, the biggest band out of Iceland. Uh, this was also the most expensive album to produce in Iceland at that time. And the album is called Here Today, Tomorrow Next Week.
1: <laughs> A strange they don't t- know English real well. <laughs> no, that's, that's the
0: impression I'm getting. Um, I, I heard that it was uh, at least partially inspired by something Mr. Toad says from Wind in the Willows. Oh, sure. Yeah, if you anyone's been to Disneyland, you'll always remember Mr. Toad's <laughs> Wild Ride.
1: At least remember that.
0: Yeah, so. The sugar cubes are, are probably most well-known Because they're a band that has Bjork as uh, one of their two lead singers. Yeah, right. And she, of course, went on to massive, massive worldwide success. But there is another singer. How's your Icelandic, by the way? Siggy? Is that his name? Um, This guy's name is Einar Orn. Oh, oh, that guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Benediktsson.
1: I thought he had a nickname everyone called him by. Oh. I don't know how you pronounce this.
0: Einar. Einar. Einar Orn. (laughs) So he's also going to be singing on this track. And, For better or worse. Yeah, I think this album was was <laughs> criticized in part because he was singing too much. Yeah, it could be. If you are interested in this album, it should be noted that there is also a version that is sung completely in Icelandic. So wow. you can get yourself an English version and you can get yourself an Icelandic version. The Icelandic version is called r Árfur.
1: It's a catchy title.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we're going to listen to a song called Regina. And um, I don't know. That's, all. That's what I got. Let's, let's just listen to it, and we'll, we'll talk about the song. Welcome, Mr.
1: Terrific, sun. I'm westing quite nicely. Thank you. I do say nicely. I do. The course is one word, huh? Regina.
0: Yeah, I guess the song's called Regina. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> Let's just punch that in. Yeah. Regina. Man, you know, that's the thing I always remember. I remember the I don't know if it was the first record, but the one that really kind of broke them that was like on Electra or whatever before this. The with birthday as yeah, a yeah. Big single. Um that record. I mean, we I was doing college radio then. I was mm-hmm. a music director and, and it was just, you know, everyone loved it. Yeah. It's great. I mean, and the thing that they love sometimes it's the contrast between the two singers, but mostly you love Bjork's voice. I right. Mean, it's really interesting and compelling. Right. It still is. Yeah.
0: Right? I mean, she sounds like a star and she sounds yeah. like something totally different.
1: It's super fun to yeah. listen to her. And that guy just is like, who's the guy yelling in the other room? I looked up the
0: lyrics for this one. Cause I, I couldn't make out anything that was being said really. I, yeah. You
1: know, except the lobster. Except
0: for the lobster. <laughs> and I couldn't make any sense of the lyrics from the lyric sheet either. Nice. It's, Have you ever been to like a a Chinatown and they would sell t-shirts that say things that look like English expressions and... Yeah, they're all messed up. Yeah, they just don't mean anything. They got confused. That's kind of what it looked like. It looked like it was a lost in translation sort of issue. Oh yeah, I love stuff like that. And the lobster line actually, they say something about lobsters and fame. That was actually a mistranslation of something they got from an ABBA book. No way. It was about caviar, caviar (laughs) and fame, caviar and money, whatever it was translated into icelandic and then back into english again oh fun came out as lobsters
1: caviar lobster same thing (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. i love that i like that kind of thing i mean that the thing that was cool about them is they weren't really a normal band they were very they're into this being more of a project and Mm -hmm. experimental so the problem is like even like i'm doing i'm placing this expectation of this being a centerpiece for bjork or something whereas it was more of a collective and a project Mm -hmm. you know so sometimes our expectations are a little amiss mm-hmm. with how we perceive it. Sure.
0: You know? One thing I forgot to mention earlier when I, we were talking about Einar Orn, mm-hmm. uh, apparently he was the very first punk in Iceland.
1: <laughs> Somebody, someone bestowed this honor. Yeah, yeah. Here's your, here's he, your little badge of honor. He does. Dude. He's got a, he's got a
0: trophy <laughs> and a crown. The very first punk. He spent some time in uh, London, I think, in 1977, and came back with his medal,
1: his <laughs> punk medal, his punk outfit. Yeah. That's the most insane thing I ever heard. I'm sure he never goes around telling people that. Yeah, I was the very first punk in in uh, Iceland, yeah. in Reykjavik. I was a, I was so punk.
0: Yeah. Oh, but you know what? In more recent years, he ran for and won a oh. seat on the city council in Reykjavik. I heard that. Yeah. Yeah, and he was a uh, he ran as a member of the Best Party.
1: Oh, yeah, because you don't want to be the worst party. No,
0: no. You don't even want to be like the okay party. <laughs> yeah. If you want to run. be
1: the totally awesome party. Yeah. I like that. Mm-hmm. More people knew him than anyone else. It yeah. kind of works. You know, you get a little media publicity, and then you can be president or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> whatever. It's, it's a different world.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that's our
1: songs. Do we notice anything? Is there any any <laughs> trends? Any uh... well, the drum sound. You know, yeah, lots of reverb. Mm-hmm. You noticed that on this on this last track, actually, the Sugar Cubes. It was pretty drenched in reverb. The drum sound really distant. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought about this the other day. Actually, I came up with a weird idea. But when the digital reverbs came out and, the, and they became more uh, accessible in the eighties or something, you started hearing that on records a lot. And one of my theories is that. You hear that because that was the sound of people spending more money. Mm-hmm. We we have the affluence to have this new digital reverb, so we better use a lot of it. Right. And that'll show you, the listener, that yes, we spent a lot of money making this record, and we have tools that you don't have. Yeah. Which is a different era to today. You have a digital reverb in your laptop that can do more than that that thing did. Yeah. We have access to all this stuff, I and mean, it's not special anymore. It doesn't It doesn't indicate a sense of wealth or power or or a dominance over the music that doesn't have this special reverb or such.
0: Yeah. Although I guess it's almost necessary that everyone has that equipment because no one's really shelling out the money to uh, record those expensive albums anymore.
1: That market changed. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Napster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: What about this? I noticed that Tears for Fears, this was their last album before breakup. Mm-hmm. Same for Camper Van Beethoven. Oh yeah. Uh, same for Big Audio Dynamite in a sense. And then Sugar Cubes have one more album in them.
1: I think all those bands, are, uh, you're looking at they're not the peak of their situations. Mm-hmm. E- even with the Camper track, it's a cover. It's not the peak of what those guys could do. That same record had all Our favorite fruit, which to me still just gives me chills. It's one of the best songs ever written, in my opinion. But you know, these other artists are really worried about the marketplace and camper was trying to work their way into the marketplace too. I mean that it's basically the problem with the music business is just a speculation based industry and the speculation falls hardest on the artist in most Mm -hmm. cases. And, uh, that leaves people unhappy most of the time, (laughs) many times. And, uh, It's hard to sustain that, you know, to do that for 10 plus years and and then be like, nobody's paying me, Mm -hmm. even though everyone's listening to my record. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I read an REM book fairly recently and, you know, of course they stayed together for a long time, but they were on their sixth album before they really started to see any money. I mean, they were college rock superstars, but
1: they weren't, they weren't making money. Kind of in a lot of the business, you don't see money until something just goes over the top, Mm -hmm. you know? And even with them, it's like I saw them on their third album tour, Fables of the Reconstruction. And they were playing the Greek Theater in mm-hmm. Berkeley, which is not a small venue. Right. But, you know, I mean, it's basically like your band sustaining you. It's paying your, your lodging and your food. Yep. And it's probably paying your rent while you're on tour. Mm-hmm. And then you get home and then you go, what do I do? And then you have to start writing a new album and then do it again. Yep. And uh, you're on this treadmill, mm-hmm. you know, and... They had very good management, R.E.M., they at least did take care of them. And it was a nice slow growth, if you yes, think about it, it which is safer. By the time you get losing my religion, it's like mm-hmm. they're, they're ready to tackle the bigger venues and things like that. Yep,
0: and I think so, we're quickly approaching a point here where a lot of bands are going to be in the uh, quick growth category.
1: <laughs> <laughs> in, the, in your history of this? Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, you'll see one-hit wonders and stuff. The, the grunge underground thing is going to start re- rearing its head we've here. seen a couple yeah jane's
0: addiction popped up oh, yeah you know god i hate them
1: <laughs> i saw them once open for big black yeah. steve albini's yeah, old yeah. band and they were just like the worst they were like led zeppelin without good guitar solos or vocals wow good vocals it was awful <laughs> steve albini's like what jane's a dick you know like he's yeah backstage crying man i know i sometimes i can't believe the stuff that gets popular But, hey, that's just me.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, it's a little something for everybody, I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'll take the go-betweens any day. (laughs) Sure.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Larry, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Um, If anyone wants to write in with comments or questions, you can get a hold of me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. And that's our show.
1: (laughs) Awesome.